Before we get into today's episode, I want to say that we recorded this, I believe, just after the murder of George Floyd took place, but it had not quite made mainstream news, and so we don't mention it, but that's certainly not on purpose. I'll say now, all of us have a responsibility, not just to speak up, but to risk our own comforts to show this is not the America we want to live in. Personally, I have not done a good job in this, nor in educating myself on this in the past, but in my view, this really needs to feel like a broader team effort. The word injustice has been used frequently here, but it's certainly an injustice, but an injustice suggests an anomaly or a one-off that has strayed from an otherwise just system, and that doesn't capture reality. One of those areas that's always come to mind is the protection police provide to fellow police. I'm personally sympathetic to the challenges many officers have, but if the system and the culture is set up in a way to protect not just bad police officers, but sick, violent, murderous police officers, then that is nothing short of a tragedy. I saw someone say, if you have a thousand good police and ten bad police that the good police are trained to protect, you have a thousand and ten bad police. And that feels right. As I said, I failed to educate myself properly on this and, and find the right ways to step up. But one way it seems many of us can help now, at least in this moment from afar, is to donate to funds promoting racial justice. I reached out to a friend recently and got a short list of funds where I think a dollar could go a long way, and I'll list them now. The George Floyd Memorial Fund. This is the official GoFundMe to support the Floyd family. Uh, you can find that at gofundme.com slash f slash George Floyd. The Minnesota Freedom Fund. This is a community-based nonprofit that pays criminal bail and immigration bonds for individuals who have been arrested while protesting police brutality. Black Visions Collective. This is a black, trans, and queer-led organization that is committed to dismantling systems of oppression and violence and shifting the public narrative to create transformative long-term change. Unicorn Riot, which is a non-profit organization that is dedicated to exposing root causes of dynamic social and environmental change. Campaign Zero, organization that utilizes research-based policy solutions to end police brutality in America. I encourage you to donate, and that's just a start, but certainly something. And with that, I just encourage everyone to look out for each other and stand together to make a difference. Welcome to the After School Podcast. This is Ryan Dean. Today I'm talking with Brian Kim, also class of 2012. After Exeter, Brian went to Princeton, graduating summa cum laude and Phi Beta Kappa in the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. He received a master's in China studies from Peking University, where he studied as a Yenching scholar. He has interned with the Center for Strategic and International Studies, State Department's Japan Desk, and Chozon Exchange in Singapore, working on policy challenges involving China, Japan, and the Koreas. Brian's currently a student at Yale Law School. He is the editor of the Yale Law Journal and Yale Journal of International Law and on the board of the Paul Side China Center and Yale Law Business Society. I'll just say he knows a lot about a lot, and I learned a lot from this conversation. Brian and I talked about coronavirus and the differences in how South Korea responded compared to the United States. We talk about the concept of South Korean and North Korean reunification. We talk about his studies in China and how it led to the FBI giving him a call. It's a fantastic story. 
And finally, we discuss Exeter and the effect it has had on his thinking and his studies and his sense of community. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. I learned a lot from it. So without further ado, here's Brian Kemp. Brian, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. You're joining me from Seoul. And you're, when did you fly to South Korea? Because you're still studying uh, at yeah, law school, right? So when did you fly to South Korea? So I flew back in March. So I think that's when um, things were just about to get bad in the States. So I came here in mid-March in the middle of spring break. Um, and, you know, since then things have gotten bad in the States and things have gotten better here in terms of the coronavirus. So it's, it's, it's been kind of weird to see that reversal um, because I think before I came, they had like a travel, like level three travel advisory warning on Korea because Korea was like this new epicenter of disease. But then things have flipped, obviously. Yeah, and that's actually something I wanted to talk about because obviously coronavirus is on everybody's mind, mm-hmm. uh, to say the least, and it's affecting us all in, in one way or another. Um, and one of those key discussion points and things everyone's been thinking about is comparing you know, the American response to every other country. And the U.S. has the most cases, right? Um, mm-hmm. We just hit 100,000 deaths. Right. But South Korea, you know, much to the contrary, has been held up as this example of a democracy succeeding. As we're sitting here now, I think there's less than 300 deaths in South Korea. There was like 270 or something like that. Right. Um, what is the, I mean, you wrote this piece in Lawfare. Mm-hmm. You know, what is the story with the South Korean response and what should we be understanding about it? Hmm. Well, I think, I think I would say the key difference between here in Korea and the United States is that you don't need to exhibit symptoms to get tested here as long as you have ties to another patient or a site of contamination. So, for instance, if you're flying in from Europe or from the U.S., right now it doesn't matter who you are or what or what symptoms you have you'll just get tested no matter what at the airport um and i've read that you know american airports still aren't taking passenger temperatures and that's pretty shocking to me that it seems like a very logical step to take in a pandemic and basic things like that haven't been um, done by the authorities there um so here you know they made testing widely available to people for free um even foreigners early on and tested more than like 800,000 people. Um, and that's about one in every 60 people, um, which is actually pretty incredible given that only about 10,000 of those people have tested positive. So if you look at the, if you look at the numbers in the U S I think they've tested maybe like a few million people, but you know, 1.5 million people have tested, tested, tested positive. So that proportion is way different. So I think the Trump administration has been talking about how, you know, at this point, the U.S. has t- tested more people per capita than South Korea. But that's really missing the point because, you know, the testing occurred at a different point in the timeline. And that's what really matters. Um, so I think, I guess, to answer your question, I guess the two pillars in South Korea's approach have been testing and tracking. Um, so I guess here in Korea, they've implemented like very aggressive measures to track both patients and potential patients. So they're not only testing an insane number of people, but you know, those people are um, those people that are getting tested are actually from a a statistically probable group of people um, based on contact tracing and based on their direct ties or indirect ties to the, to the already confirmed patient. I mean, the aggressive measures that were taken on the tracing side, 
mm-hmm. um, are, are pretty insane, right? Like tracking specifically you know, where everyone is who has it oh, um, yeah. to some degree. I'm not sure if you're getting this in the States too, but you get like basically Amber style, like Amber Alert style text messages here. Every single time somebody gets, um, you know, a pet or tests positive for coronavirus nearby. So, you know, today I got like three text messages, emergency alerts on my phone telling me, you know, avoid these areas. This person, patient, like 31, um, has visited XYZ places and avoid those areas. And those places have already been disaffected. Um, so things like that. They tell you, you know, where these people have been. It's really specific. You will hear about, you know, where, like what, what seat they sat in in a theater. Like that's how, that, that's the level of specificity that you're getting here in terms of contact tracing. Um, so yeah, I think that's that. There's a huge difference there, and 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 do we have the same system in America? I don't think so. I think what happens when somebody, like, what actually happens when someone who was jogging through Central Park in New York walks into a clinic and tests positive for coronavirus? You know, what mechanisms get triggered to identify? You know, everyone, everyone, this person might have been in contact with, and how long does all that take? Because in Korea, you know, you you have a whole system where the authorities are able to access credit card histories, surveillance footage um and cell phone geolocation data of confirmed patients to determine who they've been in contact with and where they've been and they do this really fast it takes about 15 minutes so in a recent nightclub outbreak the authorities were able to identify within literal minutes some 15,000 people who had come into contact with this one person and that patient tested positive and you know the authorities were already aggressively testing 15,000 people who were related to that person in some very indirect way so i think the level of rigor that you see here hasn't really been replicated in the States. And I think, you know, that triggers a conversation about privacy because, you know, one of the reasons that contact tracing hasn't really taken root in the States is um, the concern about privacy and privacy is very important in the States. And I think um, Google and Apple have talked about developing an app where they would, you know, try to contact trace people efficiently, but, you know, even that has received a lot of um, criticism, and and I've actually, you know, debated a lot of my friends about this, about the importance of contact tracing, and personally concluded that privacy or anonymity is probably, you know, antithetical to the very definition of contact tracing. Because how do you preserve, you know, how do you preserve anonymity? How can you design a contact tracing regime when your whole focus is on preserving? anonymity right like how do you how do you balance those two things in a pandemic and you know ironically you see you know democrats like elizabeth warren talking about or tweeting about the importance of contact tracing but i think even they're not really aware of you know the full implications either the full privacy implications either um there was actually a recent washington post um editorial saying that you know it's it's impossible to have an effective contact tracing mechanism that actually you know protects privacy. Um, like those two things are normative trade-offs that you have to make. And I think in the States, the the scale will always be in favor of privacy. And I think that means that we're going to have to pay for this with deaths and just a complete lockdown. I think one of the areas that makes Americans concerned about that mm-hmm. is the feeling that of precedent, right? Like, so once, once something is allowed for an emergency and, and, you know, in the U S obviously there are a lot of extenuating circumstances where the president can declare an emergency and do all these kinds of extra things. Um, and I think the fear is to some degree that if you were to allow something for 
just this for a pandemic, for kind of the perfect situation to want to be intruding on privacy. There's a fear that, oh, well, now what prevents them from doing that, right? In another scenario. But in in South Korea, you guys actually passed, it was a specific law, right? That was like four pandemics and for just this scope, right? Or mm-hmm. something like that? Yeah. So there was actually like an outbreak, a disease outbreak here in 2015. It was the MERS outbreak, uh, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome um, in 2015. And South Korean authorities actually designed a very specific legal regime to fight the spread of infectious disease. So for instance, you know, the Infectious Disease Control and Prevention Act, that's the whole law. Um, Article 76 gives the Minister of Health authority to collect private data without a warrant from both confirmed and potential patients. Um, and also Article 34.2 also creates a disclosure requirement, you know, obligating authorities to share that information with um, the public about, you know, the patient movement paths so that members of the public can take precautions on their own. So, there's, so there, there are all these legal developments and tools designed to help the state um, effectively combat a disease, um, and that just doesn't exist in the states, um, partly because we haven't really had a disease outbreak in the states in the past, but also because we have these um, uh, policy priorities and norm priorities that value privacy and also um, just states' rights, for instance. You see the lack of coordination in the states where you know some states are not even reporting their testing numbers as frequently as some other states. And obviously some states are reopening earlier than other states. You know, all this discrepancy in the policies, like that some that's that's a coordination problem that doesn't happen in the state. It happens that doesn't happen in Korea. And I think a lot of that has to do with you know more fundamental beliefs about you know, federalism or states' rights. Yeah. And there's another parallel too, because the, the, which is the religious one, right? So, I mean, the religious right in the U S seems to be, you know, just to be speaking in general terms, Mm -hmm. um, one of the groups that is most concerned about overstepping privacy bounds. And I think, I mean, there was this religious group, there is this religious group in South Korea. What's it called? It's the Xinjiangji church. Yeah. It's the Xinjiangji cult. Yeah. That was so central to the story that you were telling and to the story and uh, of the outbreak in South Korea, can you detail why was that so important and who this group is? So there's a cult. Korea has a lot of weird cults for some reason. There's also the Unification Church. We call them the Moonies, and I think people know them by their weird weddings, mass weddings. But Sinchanji cult is another cult in Korea where, you know, it's it's actually um, pretty disgraceful disgraceful to be part of this cult. So a, a lot of these people who are infected with coronavirus wouldn't get tested or tell their family members because if they did then they would actually out themselves to their family about their cult involvement so that was like a huge reason that you know the outbreak the first outbreak in korea happened is that a patient we call her patient 31 um uh who was a member of this cult essentially infected something like a thousand or two thousand people single-handedly because she went to a service um where she came into contact with a bunch of people and all of these people got it. Um, and a lot of them were in their 20s and they were asymptomatic. Um, so that was a huge issue. And the government in response tried to crack down and find out who these people were. And they actually used provisions of the law to, 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 to extract a list of all the cult members. And there were about 200,000 cult members. And they somehow extracted that list and they uh, tested every single one of them. You know, the authorities, I think in April 
reported that 70% of all cases in South Korea had come from that one cluster. Um, and to be honest, you know, in the States, it's probably also true that you can identify these massive clusters and you know, all of these infections can be tied to very specific clusters and specific events. But because we don't have the contact, the kind of contact tracing in the States that Korea does, we don't even know where these cases are coming from. And the, 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 the reality is they're probably coming from, you know, one or two extremely um, concentrated locations based on, um, uh, I guess, gatherings that happen for some reasons. And, and, and we just don't even know where these cases are coming from in the States and therefore aren't able to um, develop uh, an effective strategy to combat the disease. So I, I would say that, you know, I think the Korean coronavirus model is only one prong of a much broader governance philosophy where the trade-offs are different. The, norm, the Korean people are willing to make normative trade-offs that Americans probably aren't willing to make. So for instance, um, recently we had a, night, a nightclub outbreak where this um, at a gay nightclub where um, these people were partying and until late in the night and this one person who was positive uh, infected like hundreds of people at this nightclub. Um, and so, th- so there was a similar concern there where, you know, how are the authorities going to track down people when, you know, they're most likely going to be closeted because there aren't, you know, gay rights aren't really a thing in this, in Korea. So, so that was a huge issue too. And it was similar to the way that um, Sinchenji outbreak um, actually unfolded. The government authorities basically had to track down thousands of people who were at this event. Um, and I think overall, I think Koreans were willing to make a normative trade-off that kind of threw these people under the bus. Um, and the benefit of that is that um, we no longer have a crazy surge in cases. Um, but obviously, that's a trade-off we made. Yeah. And, and what has been the reaction in terms of from within Korea, right? Because from the outside, it's like the pinnacle response. I mean, it is incredible. You were saying before, you know, one or 2,000 cases had maybe come from even just this one gathering. Right. But there's only like 10,000. Now uh-huh. I think there's 11,000 cases or something like that total. Right. So it feels, and certainly from the outside and probably the inside too, but it feels like such a victory um, and an ongoing battle, but just a very impressive response. What's the internal reaction, um, you know, from politically and just from the South Korean population? I think South Koreans are probably very proud of what's happening here. Um, you know, there are these trade-offs that we've made, but I think one thing that Americans need to realize is that South Korea never had a lockdown. So people ask me, you know, while I'm in Korea, hey, are, have things reopened yet? And I tell them, well, things never are closed because we had an aggressive contact tracing mechanism that kind of negated the need for a complete lockdown. So I would even go further and say that the kind of complete lockdown that you see in the States is what you get when you don't have a competent government response that makes use of an advanced contact tracing mechanism. Um, so that so then you're, you're forced to kind of fall back on a dumb approach where you have to lock down everything because you don't have a more advanced approach that can actually capture targeted populations so that the rest of the population which is like 95% of the population that is healthy can go on and live life as usual, right? And that's been the case here. We never locked down. Restaurants are open. Hair salons are open. People are wearing masks. And when there are cases, they, they, there, there is a robust 
contact tracing infrastructure to make sure that the people who came in the path of these confirmed patients are immediately isolated and tested so that, you know, you don't have a complete freeze in the economy the way you see in the States. So I think, you know, one thing I should add is that, you know, I think people seem to think that when you when you talk about this draconian government measure against disease, people think that the trade-off is actually between that and openness and transparency. So people talk about, you know, uh, well, the South Korean approach you know, actually undermines democratic transparency and openness because it empowers the government to do all these things that are um, encroaching on people's privacy rights. But actually, I think the way Koreans have been talking about it is that these, these very um, broad surveillance strategies are precisely why Korea has been able to be open. Um, so it's, it's, so you need these draconian government measures in order to be open. So it's kind of like, that is precisely the reason we are open. The fact that the government is able to be extremely aggressive with a very specific population of people is precisely the reason that Korea has been able to be open um, and not locked down with, you know, like, like, like the rest, like the rest of the world. Um, so that's that's the kind of sentiment that we're feeling here. Um, and the other thing that I want to mention is, you know, there's freedom. There, there, there's you know the right to privacy, of course, but there's also freedom of movement and freedom of commerce, right? So we don't really talk about those freedoms as being violated. And if you really think back on what happened in January or February when um, when China locked down Wuhan, uh, there was so much. I guess shock. I, I remember West, uh, most of, like the New York Times was extremely scandalized by the fact that China had locked down an entire city and restricted the movement of something like 300 million people. And um, you know, fast forward a few months, and we've essentially had a nation nationwide lockdown in the states for much longer than China has. And you know, under reporting aside, China with a population of 1.3 billion people. By month three, had pretty clearly defeated the coronavirus, and they were confident enough to open Disneyland Shanghai, and and they did all of that within about three months, and they have a population that's four times bigger than the United States. So I think that's a reality that Americans have to confront. That of course, you know, China blaming China blaming uh, maybe is important, but it has its limits because at the end of the day, this American crisis is a man-made crisis and it's a domestic crisis, right? And I think the numbers speak for themselves. One of the main questions that people I've talked to have and that I have is mm -hmm. around testing and how we were so poor. I mean, the, the testing was a failure pretty much. Um, it's completely apolitical and everyone recognizes it was a total failure, um, maybe besides the president. But <laughs> on that aside, uh, do you have an understanding or, or a picture of how South Korea was able to even have that many tests and kind of deploy them effectively where here we were going to hospitals and they were saying, you know, we don't have enough tests. I mean, and they, were, they were all going to the CDC in Atlanta at the start and the whole right. thing just felt very slow and there was a lack of infrastructure there. But, but how did South Korea, how were they able to manage so many tests so quickly? So there's actually um, a lot of things that have been written about this. So I think Korea was in one part lucky, but in others just prepared. So the lucky part is that they actually ran a scenario, like an actual like 
a simulation literally in January where they thought where they pretended that this coronavirus would take over Korea. So they actually like had a whole simulation already in place where they would, you know, organize and coordinate um, private and public cooperation between the government and private companies to make sure that people were getting enough masks and people were getting enough um, tests. So in that way, Korea really locked out because literally a, a month later, the actual outbreak happened and they already had everything um, practiced and rehearsed. So that you know really ended up helping Korea because the South Korean government was able to tap into these private sector resources to make sure that the tests were immediately available. Um, but in terms of preparation, I think you know the legal regime. So obviously, we talked about the ability of the South Korean government um, to come up with very specific authorities. Um, and one of those authorities is um, a, a literal provision in the in the South Korean law that says everybody has the right to free testing. Um, so there's there's uh, there's free universal healthcare in the in in South Korea, and like that that's uh, a backdrop that really informs the ability of the South Korean government to provide so many tests um, so fast. I mean, it's it's also just funny because the pandemic. Well, none of it's funny, but it's interesting that the pandemic is is it's one of those things that everyone knew was inevitable and is inevitable, and another one's inevitable. And there's so many things about this coronavirus that aren't um, nearly as bad as you know, obviously they could be, right? So the transmission rate is so high, but mortality rate is generally quite low. Um, so in terms of the next one that's coming, I mean, there's a sense in which it's to some degree, it makes sense that it's something that doesn't get addressed, right? Because like politically, it does, it's not really a winner to talk about, especially pre, let's say coronavirus, maybe now it will be, but it's not really a winner to talk about your pandemic response plan or anything like that. And even though, uh, you know, Obama had set up that team and then Trump seemed to have dismantled it and there's all of these things going on, there still was a general sense of uh, a lack of preparedness that people like Bill Gates and others were pointing out years ago. Uh, and saying that this is, will come and we are screwed. Uh, right. And I, I don't know, if, do you expect to see uh, changes? Um, I don't know. I mean, I mean, changes in the U.S. law or, or whatever, some some kind of infrastructure change that will address this for the next time? Or do you think we'll get over this, people will forget about it, and then uh, it, it won't get solved? You know, I mean, it's hard to gauge from here what the mood is in America, because it seems like everybody is out and about. And based on the reports, people seem to be sunbathing in, bar- in parks for Memorial Day weekend. And so I, so I think from the way I see it from Korea, there just seems to be a huge disconnect between the numbers that you see and in the States and the general mood there. And you know, not to, men- not to mention the stock market seems to be soaring, right, um, as people are literally dying. And, and I remember when South Korea was in the throes of the Shincheonji outbreak, there was this really, you know, tangible feeling of collective despair and shock and urgency that drove everybody to participate in this whole of society effort to contain the outbreak. And, you know, I read from Twitter a couple of weeks ago that, you know, more people have died in New Haven, Connecticut, which has 150,000 people so far from co- from coronavirus than all of South Korea, which has 50 million people. And, that, and, and honestly, I think that should be enraging. I think people should be angry and protesting about that, not about, you know, not protesting the lockdowns, right? Like, I think there needs to be rage that needs to be channeled. Like these numbers are so shocking and honestly shameful that like this is being allowed to happen in the States. Um, and, 
you know, I think based on the Korean experience, there's go- there has to be and there will be another deep shock to the American system as states continue to reopen and face a massive second surge. Um, you know, South Korea, even with an aggressive contact tracing infrastructure, had, you know, a very close call two weeks ago when a nightclub outbreak happened. And that's with a contact tracing mechanism. And um, I've personally actually concluded that this disease, as bad as it was, was actually not a horribly difficult disease to clamp down, presuming aggressive contact tracing and broad testing. Um, South Korea still hasn't seen a single case tied to the parliamentary uh, parliamentary elections um, held last month, when literally 30 million people left the House in one day to vote. And we haven't had a single case from that. Um, and even the nightclub event that I keep talking about, the nightclub outbreak that I keep talking about, has become a relative non-event with cases now back in the single digits, thanks to contact tracing. And I also read that Japan is also finding it to be a pleasant surprise, how easy, how relatively easy it's been to clamp down the virus. And obviously, I'm not trying to like, you know, undercut the effort of these health authorities. But the point is that I don't, I've personally concluded that this disease wasn't a horribly difficult disease to control. And, and, And I think without the kind of aggressive contact tracing in place, the United States doesn't stand a chance against reopening and a second surge. Um, and I think that's pretty clear based on the Korean experience. Yeah, it's scary. I mean, there was the sense of despair that you described, the collectiveness uh-huh. uh, months ago when we all went to this initial lockdown. Right. I think everyone was feeling the kind of exponentiality of it. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, this was back when also when Cuomo was saying, um, you know, starting to take really aggressive action, right? And saying, we're going to shut down everything and that we're going to need ventilators. And that was where right at that peak moment, I do think there was a collective feeling of we'll basically all do anything it takes to slow this thing down because right. where it's headed now, we just don't have the capacity in, in our hospitals and things like that. But then the problem with that is that, you know, when you flatten the curve, you extend out the uh-huh. the curve, right? Like by right. definition. And and then there was a sense that, okay, now we're all doing our part. And there was all this kind of pop culture around then. There still is. It's the stay at home and all these things. And I think basically everyone was on, on board with that. What's happening more recently is because it feels like, well, that was a successful effort. And even though there's no necessary, necessarily like solution, that nothing's necessarily changed in terms of what's going to happen when we all come back out, mm-hmm. there's a sense of, well, uh, okay, the hospitals aren't overrun. You know, I'm probably young and healthy, and right. you know, these are the these are what people are saying. I'm young and healthy, and it seems like mostly older people are being affected. And well, I'm just going to mm-hmm. go, you know, live my life. And partially because it's that feeling of, you know, can we stay locked down forever? Mm-hmm. Um, no, right. But uh, now we're we're coming up on three, four months. It's going to just keep going. I mean, you know, a lot of workplaces are not going to reopen until. Uh, 2021. Um, and, you know, my office is, we're, we're punting to August and it just could keep going. Right. And, and, sc- and schools, yeah, my, my fall semester might get canceled. I can't, I don't even know if I'm going to be back um, for law school. Yeah. So that's the sense. I mean, that's, that's the sentiment is like, well, uh, what is the plan, right? What are we waiting for to mm-hmm. kind of get back out there? And uh, it could just be that I don't know, but I, I do feel that everyone doesn't know what that is. Yeah. So, you know, what's something that, that just, you know, reminded me that something that's been very shocking to me is that most of the conversation in Congress 
throughout this pandemic regarding the pandemic has been about the economic um, stimulation that we need to make sure that the country doesn't go uh, into complete ruin. Um, and there's a direct comparison here because in South Korea, people didn't even start talking about the economic response to the crisis until after the public health crisis had first been uh, taken care of. Right. So, um, instead, you know, in March, for instance, when the outbreak was happening here, South Korean politicians were focused on amending the disease law so, so that they, so that it could be more effective. So for instance, they increased the sentence for breaking quarantine. So I think um, about a week ago, there was a first the, the first person um, to get arrested for breaking quarantine got sentenced to six months in jail. And that's the result of a new amendment in the law in March that was it, uh, that was um, reactive to the situation. So I think, you know, you could say that that's highly adaptive. Somebody else might say, you know, that's increased, that's uh, incredibly invasive. Um, but the point being, the conversation during a pandemic was about refining the legal mechanisms to make sure that the government had the adequate authority to make to, to control the outbreak from a public health perspective, not from an economic perspective. In the States, I feel like people kind of threw, up, threw their hands up, hands up in the air and they really aren't doing anything about the public health component. We're just doing, doing a complete lockdown and just hoping for the best. And that's kind of our strategy in the States is that, you know, obviously, obviously people are working really hard in the front lines, but, you know, we haven't really come up with a um, way to, for instance, revise the law to make sure that we have a contact tracing regime or to make sure that you know, that states are, are are required to follow certain guidelines or that people are required to make uh, to wear masks. Um, so I think that's the difference. Um, I think there is a way to address this crisis um, in a more effective way, just based on the Korean experience. I think really the answer is to develop a serious contact tracing regime that will have to challenge our notions of privacy. And I think this will actually trigger a deeper conversation about the state power in general. So I think this might trigger a conversation about, you know, the return of strong states because in a way the American system is a system that's this defined that that that's designed to prevent and protect against tyranny, right? So we are we, our entire constitution is based on negative rights. So we we have a whole system that's focused on making sure that the government isn't encroaching on people's rights. And that's the way we've conceived of ourselves. And that's our governance philosophy. And that's how we built our nation and built our economy, right? With the idea that the private sector shouldn't be um, um, interrupted by the government or, or that the government shouldn't be meddling with the private sector. Like, for instance, in, in China, where the government, the private, the private public boundary is a lot more um, iffy, right? So I think um, the result of this crisis may be that we are start, we're going to start to question the functional superiority of our system because, in a way, the reason that we are struggling so much with the coordination is that we have a system that doesn't really favor a strong state response. And in a case like this, in a pandemic, that's, that has actual real-life consequences. People are dying as a result. And I think that's going to trigger maybe a whole period of soul-searching um, and I think 
that also has implications for U.S.-China relations because, for whatever reason, in everybody's mind, China seems to be the major rival, and they embody a whole different governance structure that somehow was able to deal with this crisis better. That is that is something that I think will come out of this, like a new split, a new conversation on. Um, I don't know, maybe maybe something that South Korea's been able to do well is maintain those democratic principles and values and all those kinds of freedoms uh, in you know sort of certain sectors, but then allow for the strength of, of a state when it comes to yeah controlling a pandemic or an emergency or things like that and coordinate. Mm-hmm. Right. Interesting. So you've done a lot of work on South Korea, on North Korea and the Korean Peninsula and Korean reunification. Right. Why is this something that you're even interested in and focused on um, and and have studied? Like, why is it something that you like to spend time working on? One major thing that um, I found shocking when I first came to the States is the American understanding of the Korean War. So in the United States, people talk about the Korean War as a Cold War proxy war. It's the first proxy war between the United States and the Soviet Union and also China, right? That's not the way Koreans talk about the Korean War. And Koreans think of the Korean War as a national war, a civil war of national unification. So I think this is kind of related also to some conversations about Exeter that I want to have with you, uh, you know, in, mm-hmm. later. But I think, I, I well, I grew up with my grandmother and great-grandmother when I was young in Korea, and they were both from North Korea. They were both from Pyongyang and had a great influence on my intellectual passion for, for Korean reunification uh, and U.S. foreign policy toward Korea in general. Because, you know, growing up, I always heard stories about Pyongyang. You know, my 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 um, grandmother and great-grandmother both speak with a North Korean accent. Um, and and so that, that's been a big influence as well, just the idea that you're living with people who are from a country that you, can, you can't even visit anymore, right? Um, so for, I, for one, believe Korean reunification will happen in our lifetime, um, and that it's a matter of when, not it. Um, so one thing people should understand is that although the concept of the modern nation state probably didn't you know, develop until recently, the Korean Peninsula was actually one unitary state for most of the last 1500 years. So, you know, since the unification of the peninsula in about the 7th century, the Korean peninsula has never been divided. So the division we see on the peninsula today as a result of the Cold War really is an aberration from what has, what's always been a unified peninsula. And I think that historical arc alone is enough to explain a strong feeling and um, momentum towards reunification on both sides of the Koreas. And that's even considering the fact that, you know, with the younger population in South Korea, people are less enthusiastic about Korean reunification in the South. Um, even then, I think, you know, for instance, Seoul and Pyongyang are pursuing a joint Summer Olympics in 2032. So there are, there are things um, that are already being scheduled to kind of boost the kind of interaction between North and South Korea that would lead to integration. And that's something that I think will happen easily in our lifetime. Um, but I could be wrong. <laughs> that's just my optimistic, optimistic um, outlook. Um, and I guess more on the point about the earlier point I made about like the Korean War being a war of unification. 
I think the reason that's important for Americans to understand is that there's this whole paradox of reunification, and I've I've written a lot about this in my research, and it's basically that the paradox of reunification is basically that the fact that you want to be reunified is literally the reason you are kept from reunifying. So, uh, so ironically, the reason the two Koreas are still divided is because they really wanted to be unified, because they wanted to unify the other in their vision of government, right? So like we fought a war, a civil war, to achieve unification under one of our systems, and that's why we are still divided, because we are so fixated on unification. And ironically, the moment you kind of give up on unification is when you are able to kind of build these normal bilateral ties. And that's also related to the German experience. For a long time, East Germany and West Germany were very hostile to each other. They had a policy where they were going to target the other country um, politically, and they didn't even have bilateral ties. And then in the 70s, um, there was a shift in German policy uh, into the 80s. They had a shift in policy in Germany where um, they uh, engaged on the basis of peaceful coexistence. So, so in other words, they gave up, really, on the idea of immediate unification. Because unification implies one or the other will fail, right? So whenever South Korea talks about unification, North Korea gets all riled up because they think and they read that as, oh, you're trying to, you're going to try to come and destroy us. And when North Korea talks about unification, South Koreans are freaked out because that sounds like they're going to invade. Um, so the moment you actually build um, this basis of peaceful coexistence is when you can actually begin to talk about the integration, the kind of integration that leads to economic integration and also eventually political unification. And that's exactly what happened in Germany. They actually were able to, you know, exchange letters. People were calling each other between Germany and uh, between the two Germanys in the 80s. There were there were cultural exchanges between the two countries once peaceful coexistence was established. So this is the paradox of reunification, where the, ironically, if you want to be unified, you have to kind of give it up. <laughs> How do you square that then with um, it, it seems to me that if I were thinking about reunification, it, it's difficult to think of it in any other way than basically all of South Korea and North Korea becoming something more like South Korea. Do you see it that kind of way too, or, or what? Yeah, I think there's a lot of controversy about that. Even in the German case, East Germany essentially dissipated, right? It became subsumed into the West German system. And although it was peaceful, it was clearly a collapse situation where East Germany no longer existed. So it wasn't a compromise per se, because East German leaders were not really playing a role in the West German government, in the in the unified German government. And um, and in a way, it was kind of luck that you know Gorbachev and changes in the Soviet Union allowed for the peaceful passing of East Germany. And whether that would happen in North Korea is a different question, because we have China and we have Russia who you know want to maintain this ally um, and sustain that country from falling. Um, so I think that's a different dynamic there that's hard to compare. Um, but I think even then there are ways around it. You know, there, there, were, there were talks of a federation in the 90s. So South Korea and North Korea would um, establish a third state. So it wouldn't be South Korea, you know, subsuming or, or North Korea being subsumed into the South Korean system. But a third state, where a successor state where South Korea and North Korea both dissipate and they form a kind of joint government um, that involves the participation of both previous states. Um, 
so that would involve a whole new constitution. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of controversy around whether that would inv- involve um, giving amnesty to Kim Jong-un, for instance, and all the political leaders of North Korea who in you know other instances might actually have faced execution or trial or some kind of grave punishment for their crimes. So there are all these like transitional justice issues here. And I, I think this is a very thorny topic, but there are so many ways to approach unification. And even if you don't actually arrive at political unification, there are so many ways to integrate the two economies. So, you know, I think the most peaceful kind of uh, unification is one that's actually transitions-based. So in multiple, across multiple stages. Um, so for instance, in the first, like maybe 10 to 20 years, you might have uh, um, a re- uh, you might have engagement between the two Koreas where there are highways, there are people traveling in between the two cities, uh, two countries between Pyongyang and uh, Seoul, and um, you eventually kind of build up from that base to greater political unity. So I think there are so many different approaches to this. Um, but I think the cleanest, probably the most simple approach is actually to um, to to is for North Korea to collapse. I think that's why it's so controversial. Mm. Is that mm. that's just the cleanest way to do this, but it's also the most destabilizing way. The idea of North Korea and collapse, North Korea collapsing, is actually so frightening because um, people usually think, oh, when North Korea collapses, oh, South Korea can just go in and take over, right? But that's not that simple because, it's, as I said, there's China involved, and also North Korea has an active military of one point something million people. And they have a reserve military of something like three to four million soldiers. And these people have access to nuclear codes and nuclear weapons that we don't even know where they are. So I think, you know, there's there's so many risk factors involved here. I was going to say, when, you, when you're mentioning the idea of having a third state as like a way to unify, it would seem to me just from the outside that, you know, is unification the priority or is sort of helping, and I don't know what the right word even would be there, right? But rescuing, saving of the North Korean people, like, is is that more important, right? Uh, than finding a kind of something that just works for, for both sides. Does that make sense? Do you think mm-hmm. about it that way too? I think the way I think about it is that every nation has a national narrative. For instance, China, China's whole narrative is about regaining and reclaiming its lost glory from the century of humiliation. They go back all the way to the Opium War when they talk about their modern history. Um, their desire to regain that number one spot in the world, it's, it's, it's intimately tied to their sense of self based on their history of humiliation from European powers since the 1800s. So for, 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 for a lot of reasons, I think, um, for, for, for the similar reasons, I think South Korea has a similar narrative where um, for, for, for a lot of Koreans, um, unification isn't just about helping North Korea, but it's actually about rectifying um, a previous grievance that has affected all Koreans. Um, you know, s- families are still separated. There are people in South Korea whose parents are still in North Korea and they haven't been able to meet for years. You know, that's that's um, that's that's a national collective trauma that hasn't been addressed. So I think a lot of Reunification has to do with finding a remedy for that and rectifying that previous wrong. Um, mm. And the other thing that I also wanted to bring up is, 
I think for something that's something that might be hard for Americans to understand is that for America, America, like the United States of America, the one that we know of, is the only manifestation of the American people that we know of, right? That's the only time that America has existed. The state and the people are the same. But but in Korea, for instance, right, and even in China, there have been many different versions and many different manifestations of the Korean people on the Korean Peninsula. So, for instance, you know there is the Chosun Dynasty that lasted for six hundred years, and before that, there is also another dynasty, multiple different dynasties that have existed on the peninsula. And of course, it's probably you know a modern invention to 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 impose some kind of continuity in that, but even then, I think there's this idea that the state is only um, a temporary manifestation of the people who live in that uh, in that region, right? So, I think one 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 thing that I thought was really interesting is South Korea actually, for a very long time until recently, celebrated as its national founding day um, not the Republic of Korea, but the people of Korea. So they would go back all the way 5,000 years um, and celebrate the founding of the Korean people as like their national founding day. Um, and wow. com- compare that to the way we think of um, our country in the United States and we think of 1776, right? And that, that's, when it all, that's when it all began. For, for Koreans, you know, they include in their conception of the Korean state every single version of the Korean state slash kingdom that's existed. Um, And I think that is also related to the conversation about reunification, because I think Koreans intrinsically, given their longer history, have an idea of state and nation state that's more transitory than than Americans have of their uh, system. So you mentioned China and their role in all of this. Um, and you know, them having their national narrative and also their role in, in the Korean unification problem and challenge. Um, and you studied there, right? And that was, was that part of a Princeton exchange program? Is that kind of how that worked? Or what, was, what were you studying there and, and what was that experience? Yeah, so it was actually a master's fellowship with Peking University. Um, so after Princeton, I applied to a graduate fellowship in China called Yunqing Academy, uh, where Peking University so, so basically, what happened is the Chinese government in the early, I think, two thousand or in around two thousand twelve, decided that they wanted to design a program to attract people to study in China, international students to study in China. It's kind of like um, the UK and the Rhodes program, where they try to attract people around the world to come to the states, or or the US in general. We want people from all over the world to come here, and 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 the benefit of that is. It's not direct, but I think the benefit of having students come to your universities to study is that they go away with a heightened appreciation for your country and your values. And so like that maybe it was part of the Chinese government's um, attempt to create a program that was designed specifically to attract people from the United States and also Europe. So and so, so around 2012 um, or 2011, I think, the Chinese government with Peking University established um, a whole new program called the Yenching Academy, where um, the whole purpose was to bring in students from the U.S. Um, 
to study for a master's, fully funded master's degree for a couple of years. Uh, so that's what I did. And given my interest in U.S. foreign policy in Asia and North Korea specifically, you know, I realized it was impossible to be informed without understanding China and its important role in the region. So this was this felt like the perfect opportunity for me to go there and learn about China, um, improve my Chinese language skills, and also to do research. Um, and because it's a master's research program, I actually had to do uh, another thesis. Um, so that was all part of that program for two years. So that was between 2016 and 2018. Um, and since then, a lot of things have changed. Um, obviously, you know, we have, we're living through a different climate between U.S. and, uh, a different climate in U.S.-China relations. Um, and that wasn't necessarily the case when I was there. Things were a lot more positive, um, between the two countries. Um, and I guess the reason I knew I had to be in Beijing, um, is that, you know, we know so little about this giant country, um, and it's going to play such a big role in our lives, not only, you know, in East Asia and for Korean affairs, but also just in general as Americans. It's important to understand what's going on in China um, and the dynamics there. And it was, it, it, for me, it was really just an opportunity to ex- explore the country and meet new people and also do research. Um, and one research focus that I had was examining factions within the Chinese political system. So we, we think the Chinese Communist Party is some monolithic machine, but uh, but you put human beings together anywhere, and no matter the label, they form factions that, and, and they all compete and hate each other. And there are internal political rivalries that we just don't know about that drive Chinese domestic political decisions. But just because we can't see them and just because we don't know about them doesn't mean that they don't exist. So my research there was focused on trying to find out what these political inter- internal pol- political factions and dynamics were. So I did some research on the Chongqing model, and um, which is a city in China, and the political demise of a politician named Bo Xilai to understand some of these factional dynamics. So really, my my whole kind of research was trying to trying to understand that although on the surface you know you see one party in China. And Xi Jinping and all of his cronies leading the country in an authoritarian way, um, there are these political pressures within the system that we just don't know about that actually exist and have a real tangible effect on the way the country is run. And um, in some ways, there are so many parallels across all political systems, including the United States, where just given the political incentives, you are you know driven to silence some people and you know side with some other people. Um, and, and just taking coronavirus as an example, we we always criticize China for silencing their people, but a lot of the same things have, have happened in the United States, where you know people who are critical of Trump right now are mm-hmm. likely to be sabotaged p- politically um, if they're especially if they're a Republican, and so these dynamics you know kind of exist across many different systems, and I think just because China is a one party state doesn't mean that these dynamics don't exist, and so I think it was important for me and I think for Americans to understand that there are there's a lot of factional strife and factional dynamics that drive the country's politics there. Hmm. Yeah, and and the the U.S. Um, analogy there is makes a lot of sense because you have people will see oh the fact that you know Trump can't take a tweet down or he can't block uh, you mm-hmm. know this in that social media network or whatever as uh, okay well no one's being silenced but 
if you're uh, you know, yeah, if you're a politician and, and especially if you're on supposed to be on the team mm-hmm. and you say something critical, it's like you're in the modern climate. I mean, you're totally an enemy now. I mean, you know, take someone like Mitt Romney, he's like the worst person to ever live all of a sudden. Right. Um, and you know, obviously he was the nominee just a, a while back. So exactly. Um, yeah. Well, and so and there's a story that happened with you and this university. Do, are you okay to tell that story? Oh so, yeah, of course. Yeah. The, you, the FBI <laughs> questioned you. Mm-hmm. What was that? What was literally what happened there? And and like, did you get a phone call? Yeah, sure. So this happened a whole year after I was back from China in my first year of law school. So I think it was in 2019. So I got a call from a strange number one day from someone claiming to be the FBI from the FBI. And of course, I thought it was a prank call because why would anybody just assume that, you know, somebody calling from the FBI is real? Um, and they claimed that they were calling from the local office in New Haven. And who, who knew that the FBI had a local office in New Haven? So when they told me that they were calling from New Haven, I was like, okay, well, that's clear, clearly not true. Because why would the FBI have a branch office? This is not like a Starbucks. Why would anybody want to be in New Haven? Um, Your local FBI office. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So then, and, and and they didn't actually tell me why they wanted to talk to me. They just told me they wanted to ask me some questions about my travel history and um and if they were very like evasive about explaining what they actually wanted to talk about and obviously um i told them well you know i think um if you could send me the details over email that'd be great because i wanted to find a way to verify their identity and then a couple minutes pass and i'm waiting for the email and then they call me back this person says oh i actually wasn't able to email you because i have to protect you an email from me and from the FBI in your inbox may compromise your security and may endanger you. Um, and so I was kind of at that point a little anxious um, because just 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 the idea of being scared by the uh, by the FBI calling you. Um, okay. And so I told them, you know, I really just want to be able to verify your identity. And he, and this person, tells me, oh, if you want to verify my employment with you know, the FBI, you need to call, you can call, you know, feel free to call the local FBI office and, and, and give them this name. So then that's exactly what I do. Um, I call, and this is the crazy part. You can literally go to Google and type FBI, like FBI number, FBI contact. That's actually a thing. (laughs) FBI contact us. Yeah. You can literally (laughs) contact, you can call the FBI. Did you know that? Um, so then I call the FBI and this operator picks up and she tells me, um, how can I help you? And I tell her, I was just contacted by somebody who claims to be calling from the FBI. And, you know, I want to verify this person's employment with the bureau. Could you please do that for me? And this person says, you know, what's their name? And I gave, gave her the name. And, and she tells me, sorry, but we can neither confirm nor deny this person's employment with the bureau. But, but... If this person is actually employed with the bureau, then he will call you tomorrow morning with this password. And the password is 8113 or something like that. It's a four-digit password. And at that point, I'm like, oh, wait, this is weird, right? This is this might actually be real. And I hang up and basically for the next 12 hours, I'm freaking out. And the next morning, lo and behold, I get a call. 
And this person says, your password is 8113. And at that point, I'm just like, okay, like, so where can I meet you? How can I accommodate your needs? How can I make your life easy? Um, and this person arranged to meet with me on campus at Yale. So literally, you know, I was meeting with FBI agents in a coffee shop at Yale on a Wednesday noon, uh, Wednesday morning around like 11.30 a.m. And I walk into the coffee shop a couple days later and this, you know, these two agents show up it's like it's like in the movies they have they show you their little badge and you're kind of scandalized because you know you're surrounded by other people and this person bought me an espresso and i was thinking wow that's on the taxpayers you know dime that you're buying me this espresso <laughs> and then i'm thinking all these things and i sit down and this person literally starts asking me everything about my life from where were you born to why were you why law school so it was literally a bi- biographical s- sketch, um, this interrogation where they asked me from everything about everything from where I was born, who raised me, when did you move to the states, like why, you know, where did you go to college, what did you do in college, all the way to, but why did you go to China? Um, so like that was the main point of the questioning, is that um, the FBI suspected that maybe I had been compromised while I was in China and had become a Chinese spy. And, um, and it was honestly, personally, a very, um, I guess, discouraging experience because I think, um, I think, I mean, obviously, I think the fact that I was interrogated for being a potential Chinese spy, even though I'm not even Chinese, indicates that we're going to live through a time of increased racism and discrimination towards Asians. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. like that, to me, was shocking that. I just for being in China for two years was being questioned by the FBI from everything, including where did you, where were you born? Um, mm-hmm. And they even asked me, and, and they even asked me like, why did you apply to this program in China, the Yanqing program? Who told you to apply for this program? And I told them um, the Princeton Fellowship Office, um, and that was literally my answer. And I, I think for me that captures the sentiment that I was feeling at the moment. It's kind of ludicrous. That they would they would actually think that you know the Chinese government had somehow like convinced me to apply to this program in China so that I could sell out and I don't know become a Chinese spy, um, like leave Princeton and all your studies and then just go to yeah exactly. Um, so yeah, I think I think and I, I guess broadly speaking, there's a bipartisan consensus towards pressuring and othering China, and I think we as a nation. We need to recognize that part of what is driving our fear of China is just sheer racism. And I think mm-hmm. I was a personal casualty of that development where, you know, with the Trump administration and even before the Trump administration, I think, um, I think there was a move in Washington to kind of pressure China more. And I think without some vigilance um, on the part of ordinary Americans, I think that could easily develop into just this wholesale discrimination towards not only Chinese, but also Asians and Asian Americans in general. And I think we've already seen um, manifestations of that with the coronavirus, uh, where mm-hmm. people are literally being punched in the face. I have a friend who was walking down the street in New York a couple of weeks ago and was punched in the face because she was, she's Asian, presumably. So um, it's 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 a very fearful time for me, I think, as an Asian American. Oh, that's crazy, and and like Chinese virus, right? Like all the all these kinds of terminology that's being used to make it this other 
uh, you know, China virus that's invading the U.S. and all this language. Um, and yeah, it's crazy. That's a crazy story, though. I mean, that's just uh, that's that's wild. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, I was hoping to talk about one more thing before we got talk. We reflect a little bit on Exeter, which is you were in Singapore, right? And you set up set up some kind of uh, MBA program for North Korean bureaucrats. Mm-hmm. And what? How'd you how'd you get into that? And what was that whole project? So I didn't um, single handedly build that project. I was actually just um, an intern for a larger project that was run by um, a man named Jeffrey C. Um, it's for an organization called Joseon Exchange, and there's a weird Exeter connection here because when I was at Exeter, we um, uh, Stephanie Ree, one of our classmates, and I brought in as a speaker for assembly the, this person Jeffrey C. And he spoke about his organization, Joseon Exchange. And he's a Singaporean who developed this program that brings North Koreans to Singapore to learn about um, Singapore's economic policy and. And the and the and the context for this is that North Korea um, is interested in the Singaporean model because Singapore uh, is really a single party state. Um, you know, it's 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 managed to be economically extremely successful, but they've also managed to um, s- sustain one party state control for the last dec- few decades, right? So there hasn't been. It's basically a one-party system, um, and North Korea, which essentially wants to continue to have this one-party system, is um, looking towards Singapore as a model, as a model that they want to emulate. So they send these people, they send these North Korean bureaucrats to Singapore um, almost every year uh, to learn about what Singapore did, um, and this organization called Chosen Exchange is the is is the organization that mediates and organizes all of these things. So I was in Singapore uh, helping out with that program, and this was the first time they were launching a mini MBA program for these bureaucrats. So these people, North Korean bureaucrats, were visiting Singapore for a few months to learn about marketing and like just uh, finance um, things that they could go back to North Korea and try to use to build up their economy. Um, and so these people, North Korean bureaucrats that were in Singapore, are really uh, like the elite because they are allowed to leave North Korea. Um, right. And because I was born in South Korea, I was actually told not to speak to them in Korean because that may endanger them and their safety to have comment to have come into contact with oh wow uh, somebody who speaks with a South Korean dialect. So you know there were so many close calls where. Basically, I had to act like I didn't understand anything they were saying in Korean. So we had this whole system where, you know, sometimes they they would say say really funny things in their North Korean dialect, and I would really want to laugh because I understand everything. But then I would have to like artificially wait until somebody translated it for me to start laughing, and then go, oh, um, <laughs> oh yeah, and and even though I understood everything, you know, immediately wow. as they said it. And what were they translating into? Just English. Yeah, English. So, like, so my whole thing was that I was, you know, an American, a Korean American, born in America, never ever, you know, came into contact with South Korea, and was in Singapore, and so, and and that's really, it, and it was, I think, to be honest, though, it was an open secret that I, I was probably South Korean, um, or, or, or that I had ties to South Korea, but um, I think the North Koreans also didn't want to delve deep because 
if they knew too much, then they would have to report it. Deniability, right? Like they, they need to be able to plug exactly. Say, yeah, exactly. So they had a whole thing where you know at the end of every day they would have to go back and like write journal entries about their day, and then their reports, their entries would be you know sent to the higher ups, who would then review the accounts. And so the, and and then if there are discrepancies in the accounts submitted by these North Koreans, so for instance, if I talked to a North Korean person. Um, in Korean, and then one person reported that, and then the other per- and another person didn't. Then that other person might be punished for that because then people might people like the North Korean supervisors might start suspecting that maybe something's going on. Um, so yeah, that was like a personally just exciting wow. moment for me just to be able to to interact with with North Koreans. Um, and the whole point was to try to make sure that North Korea. Uh, was um, got help from Singapore to reopen to open its economy. Wow. So, do you want to um, shift gears one more time, and maybe we can wrap up with a little discussion on on Exeter? And I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. that's what we have in common, and that's our connection um, is Exeter. And uh, there's so much about it that certainly that I've found stays with me more than, for example, just my undergrad college experience um, that seems unique to Exeter. And, uh, you know, one of those things we were talking about before was Harkness. And I think everyone has a different experience with it, right? And um, certainly it has pros and cons, but I know we, we were talking about, um, do, you want, do you want to talk about what that was? I mean, you were noticing like your experience with Harkness and how it's affected you um, and things that you've actually had to unlearn from <laughs> the, when Harkness right. teaches us. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't actually have firmly established thoughts on this. I just wanted to have a more open conversation about the impact that we think Exeter had on us, Mm -hmm. because I realized that a lot of our classmates and just Exeter people in general will be listening. So for me, I've had to learn in real life some of the habits that I picked up at Exeter. And of course, this doesn't have to be just Exeter or Harkness, but I think the Socratic method in general is designed actually to force and reward people for novelty and for uniqueness and for contrarian viewpoints. Uh, and for some reason in my teenage mind, I always thought I had to constantly come up with a unique angle on everything to sound smart so that I would also, so then I would sometimes perform all kinds of mental gymnast- gymnastics in my head to try to read things between lines that didn't exist. <laughs> and mm-hmm. attribute things attribute motives to authors that probably weren't even true um and um and i think honestly to be the, the things we were reading and studying have been written about and studied by thousands of people for probably like hundreds of years and i wish someone had the guts to tell me that if i was somehow coming up with a unique point that had never been said by any human before that chances are it was probably because it's actually wrong Probably wrong. Humanity decided with its collective intellect that it's just false, right? And I think, and in my personal life, I see that instinct to be a to be a devil's advocate about everything, or to be contrarian about everything, um, and just play out in my in my actual life. And I think it feels like second nature at this point. Um, But I'm realizing that life is actually more about being able to express um, and articulate more obvious things and affirming what other people are saying to be true. And I feel like that's not necessarily a skill that I developed at Exeter. 
because I think I was more focused on trying to like get some brownie points by coming up with a point that other people haven't said. Because it's not cool if you are saying something that's very obvious, right? And, you know, we were really being, it felt like we had to come up with unique viewpoints just for the sake of coming up with a unique viewpoint. And that all ties in with this idea of contrarianism, where we just want to, you know, endorse some view because it feels not, you know, mainstream. And I think that's an instinct that actually may not be that productive in real life. Um, and I think another thing is, we live in this in, in this relativist society where, you know, people's lived experiences are absolute, and that's our current cultural zeitgeist, right? But I think at a certain point, that needs to be balanced with the ability to call people out when they're clearly wrong or just spilling factually incorrect nonsense. And I think this might sound super conservative of me, but I think it really isn't. Because, for instance, there are people who believe right now that Bill Gates is actively plotting to take over the world with a vaccine and plant things in our skin and monitor us. And that mm-hmm. coronavirus is actually, you know, his invention to control humanity, right? And and that's fake news. And someone someone ought to be able to tell them that's just like false, right? But I think we're living in a moment where that balance is hard to maintain because we, I think, maybe have shifted a little too far in favor of the absolute um I don't know, correctness of people's lived experience. You know, that's maybe, maybe that's what I wish I'd gotten more of at Exeter for someone to tell me that some points are just false. You know, that mm-hmm. just because something is unique or contrarian or hasn't ever been said before doesn't make it revolutionary and novel. Um, and I mean, if anyone hearing this, you know, wants to talk to me about it, please <laughs> feel free to contact me. But I think that's my kind of tight kind of takeaway based on self-reflection of my own tendencies to be contrarian and to be a devil's advocate about basically everything. And I've had to come up with like my own coping mechanisms to kind of control that urge. Literally, you know, even for very trivial things, I might have this Mm -hmm. urge to like, to, to counter with, with some weird um, argument, um, counter argument. Right. And I think that's not really productive. And I just have to, I just have learned to kind of to manage that more. I a thousand percent agree. I mean, mm-hmm. with, with everything you said specifically to start with, I mean, on that contrarian point, mm-hmm. it's, it's a hundred percent true. I I've actually, I actually got specific feedback, uh, at, at work at my former job that in meetings, I mean, one of the obvious benefits of Harkness is that you get very good at, you know, kind of meetings and, and talking and socializing in those respects. Um, and disagreeing respectfully, for example, things like that. I mean, we're very good at that from from Harkness. Yeah. <laughs> but I absolutely, you absolutely are encouraged to add something to the conversation, um, you know, with with some kind of argument that makes sense. But if you can come up with this unique point of view and develop that, you're rewarded. But you're also rewarded just for even speaking at all. So if, if you're in c- complete agreement with what's going on, and you're mm-hmm. reaching consensus as a group, and that's what mm-hmm. work is about—to be productive—and mm-hmm. I would find myself saying. You know, pointing out some very trivial hole in, in in the argument or in the plan just doesn't add any value to everyone's you know goal there, which is to mm-hmm. get uh, achieve whatever goal we have set out. And I would just I had to bring it up because I was like I would see it, and it's not just um, it's not like any more that I want to speak in a meeting. And yeah, certainly I've, I've worked to manage that. 
it's, it wasn't even just that, uh, which in, in the Hartness case, it kind of was. Uh, it was the fact that I'm just seeing things that are are not that important, but they're yeah they're unique perspectives or the devil's advocate. You're seeing the other side of the argument, uh, even though you don't agree with that other side. I would just still raise some issue that was completely unhelpful. Right, and and you start believing it. If you say it enough, you believe it. Even even <laughs> as when even as you say, oh, I, just to be a devil's advocate. You know, even right. as you say that, you actually, if you start saying it enough, you believe the things that you're saying as a devil's advocate. Because you said it, right? Hundred um, <laughs> percent. I, I I literally found myself saying, um, and you know, that, this would have been year, a few years ago, so just out, just out of school. But uh, yeah, I, I would actually find myself saying uh, something and then saying, "But I actually don't agree with that." I mean, I would. It sounds like a joke, <laughs> saying out loud. And I sometimes I would convince some person of something, but then I would say, "But no, no, no. I actually, I'm actually wrong because of this other reason." And <laughs> I don't know if it derives fully from Martinus, but certainly was. Uh, encouraged in a sense there mm-hmm. so i i think that it runs not only through hardness but just through the american like liberal arts model mm-hmm. um that also kind of brings in the seminar slash socratic method and to be honest like i think it has to be a balance right because really all of academia is about expanding the the repository of human knowledge you know on the margins, like through that weird, unique Status angle, quo, challenging the known. Exactly. So yeah, yes, there's value in that, but I think you know, in terms of like real life consequences, we have these habits that we need to unlearn to be, you know, likable, personable human beings. <laughs> so, yeah, and and you're right. It extends into just broader, uh, broader conversation on you know what is true, right? So mm-hmm. what matters is what's true, and and understanding that. Um, and if what's true is obvious and clear. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's like, we shouldn't shy away from recognizing that to be the case. Right. Yeah. And, and kind of along the same lines, I think about, uh, you know, as my point about being contrarian, I think, I think the U S like college admissions process is designed to reward people for being unique and for being, for, and for having some intensely curated interest at a very young age. Like, I mean, there was that popular saying that we should aim to be lopsided and be really good at one thing rather than being well-rounded and good at everything, which is boring, right? It's not marketable. Mm-hmm. But to be honest, we were, what, like 15 years, like 15, 16 years old? So in hindsight, like how in the world were we expected to know what we were passionate about? And it's kind of an insane system that puts pressure so early on to specialize at a very young age. And given that, given the fact that we were very young, it's often easy and probably easiest to fall back on identity-based um, particularities. So for me... That meant clinging to things that most obviously made me feel different and unique. Mm. And that's Mm. the fact that I was an international student from Korea. And from there, you have these academic and extracurricular interests that are related to that identity. So think North Korea, Korean history, like Korean reunification, which are all things I still care deeply about. But realizing, you know, that inorganic pressure that I had as a child Mm -hmm. and realizing that my own self-perceived interests might be a product of a system that forced me to specialize early on has actually been pretty difficult for me because mm-hmm. it forced me to really question whether my own interests and my own passions were actually genuine. Um, and I think it's hard to tell. Um, and I think before applying to law school, um, I actually withdrew my application from um, uh, to, to, to pursue a PhD in political science because I actually got scared that maybe my own identity was driving me to pigeonhole myself in East Asian studies. And I felt like in some way that law school was a broader way to pursue my interests without pigeonholing myself. 
So I think I had this constant fear that maybe I was reinforcing people's preconceptions about what my passion should be based on my based on my ethnicity. And I think, and I think that's you know actually an issue that comes up for a lot of immigrants and for minorities because you know people say all the time like why is it that for instance we think black scholars should be teaching black rights and so and mm-hmm. and 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 we see so few black um professors teaching property law or contract mm-hmm. law or or you practically don't have Asians teaching constitutional law because why in our minds would an Asian be you know have the authority to be teaching american constitutional law right so that it's it's very like identity based that people kind of pigeonhole themselves um in uh, their identity uh, and that has implications for their career as well so i mean and honestly a lot of this can be traced back to something much earlier in our education and that's my point where we were mm-hmm. pressured earlier early on to find a way to distinguish ourselves from others um and for so many people it's just like your identity because you're 15 years old so what other things can you come up with yeah yeah and i i don't know i don't know that i've i've had that experience because um i mean i certainly haven't felt that mm-hmm. to really any degree except for for some professions you have to decide it feels like you have to decide early mm-hmm. like you know take med school or something like that a lot of people seem to know or they, they think they know, or they decide at some point very early on, you know, often in high right. school or whatever, like, this is what I'm going to do. So therefore I'm going to major in biology and find a way to get in there and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And now I'm in energy. So I'm in the clean energy sector. And it's, that was kind of a conscious decision to get into that industry and everything I'm doing from now on in my head, if I had to make a plan is pigeonholing me further into that. Right. So maybe higher education. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's obviously, that's me deciding at 25. Right. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I've, I've not felt that. And, um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I can imagine um, that experience, um, and I think a lot of people probably do, even if they're not, you know, they certainly don't have to be immigrants to have that experience. Maybe it's, mm-hmm. like I said, maybe it's just med school, and they decided at some early point um, that they want to do that, and then suddenly, if they were going to hop off that train, then it's like right. they've given up, but they've invested all this sunk cost uh, effort, right? So, Yeah, yeah, that's true. One of the things I really respect Exeter teachers, and I guess John Phillips, we're trying to instill in us is the emphasis on goodness and community. I, I didn't realize at the time how special it was to be part of an institution that actively promoted the importance of goodness. Um, I also didn't realize how important and special assembly was. The ability to literally sit in one room and be physically present with whatever your community might be is something I haven't really had since Exeter. Um, even in college, I was in the same space with my whole class, maybe like twice in four years. And one of them, one of the, one of those two times was for graduation. So I think especially in the world we live in now where we have extreme like polarization and a lot of hate, I think we just need to have these places that consciously teach people to practice and pursue kindness and goodness. Um, and I feel like that's something that's missing since Exeter, to be honest. And I know that I've never got any of that. Um, outside Exeter. I don't know if you've had similar experiences, but it's just like not been a conscious part of any person's Mm -hmm. agenda. Um, You know, I think one pretty shocking thing for me when I was at Princeton was I was discussing with one of my friends, like what classes they wanted to take. And they told me, you know, they were going to take the classes that would be most strategic in terms of 
their GPA like in terms of like what grades they were going to get based on like how easy or how based on the, based on the difficulty of the course, right? And for me, I thought I think we were probably like very idealistic at Exeter, but the idea of choosing classes based on you know your optimization for your grades was completely foreign to me. The idea that you would just try to that you, that you would treat education as kind of a means to an end where you just mm-hmm. want a good job after college so you just take classes that give you the easiest grades or whatever like that felt foreign to me and i think to be honest exeter was too excessively you know leaning towards the other side of that where we were just idealistic and taking and just and just be really rosy about everything and we and wanted to save the entire world um, so I think the proper balance is probably somewhere in the middle. I think we should probably be able to, you know, manage both of those things, be, be strategic, but then also not give up on our passions or whatever. Right. But, you know, I think, I think I kind of miss that kind of rosy idealistic atmosphere where we just didn't really care about that many things and just took classes because we liked them and we wanted to learn about things. Um, me too. Me too. Honestly, it does come back to, um, I mean, the balance, right? So, I mean, you could think of knowledge, um, uh, or goodness without knowledge being weak and feeble. I, th- I mean, so, so the same thing, there's, <laughs> there's an element also of effectiveness, right. um, as part yeah, of that, but, true. but there's a lot about Exeter that I almost wish I went, this may be mostly in my case or in, in some cases more than others, but it's like, I wish I went again later, right? Like you, like, I wish oh, I could yeah. experience, mm-hmm. uh, Exeter and, and, maybe when I was like 18 or something like that, or just kind of go back because like I was in a class, you know, freshman, maybe freshman winter or prep winter, I guess. Um, And it was like East Asian civs. uh, And Uh, I took both of those. And I just remember being overwhelmed, but also wild by the the discussions that were going on. mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's the kind of thing where it's like the ability to take a course like that and get exposed to that at the age of like 14 is incredible. And to have to, conversations with people and, you know, this professor who's like got all this knowledge and be able to take advantage of that. So yeah, there was a lot of stuff that was so unique to Exeter that I wish I could um, almost experience again. And that, yeah, you, you don't realize is so special and it is such a bubble until you leave. I, I don't know anybody who's had any kind of experience like that in college. It's just a completely right, different yeah. world. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, you know, in college, you kind of, uh, for for some reason, I just thought that you just took classes with people and became friends with them. Because at Exeter, that was kind of that was kind of true. You like spent time talking to these people in class and hearing their viewpoints, and you genuinely like got to know their viewpoints and got to felt close to them, right? At, at least I did. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that's just not the case in college, where you know you have these sem- like seminars with these people for literally three, four months every week, and you barely know their names. You might and never talk just, to them. Right. Exactly. It's just like you're you just never talk. Um, and I feel like that's a lack of community that we used to have. Well, listen, Brian, um, thanks so much for for doing this. Is there uh anything you've got in the future planned? You're at Yale Law School now. Um, and um, you know, what are your plans going forward uh and your kind of plans for the near future? So my current plans are to plan uh, to practice national security law in Washington, specifically on matters involving um, foreign investment and the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. So I'm hoping that you know I'll be able to have a legal career that also 
intersects with these foreign policy interests, especially on topics like China and North Korea. So, you know, I'm, I'm practicing in a field of law that touches on foreign policy toward China and North Korea and sanctions on countries like Iran. And I think those, that, that combination will be hopefully, um, fun for me. Um, we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, but I think, you know, I, in addition to that, I think I also want to try to be more prolific in my writings. Um, in an attempt to become a reliable Korean affairs commentator in the United States. Hopefully, you know, I think that's like a goal that I have is that I hope that I can share my viewpoints and my perspectives from um, being well-versed both in South Korea and the United States and actually try to help communicate some of the things that I feel as a South Korean and also a Korean American um, with people. So I think that's my goal. Um, and I hope that I'm able to talk about these matters with meaningful expertise, you know, both from a policy and from a legal perspective, but toward, but to a wider audience, not just academics. So that's the goal that I have. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's going to work, but we'll see. <laughs> well, that's awesome. I really, really enjoyed uh, our conversation. I have to thank you for taking so much time. Uh, no, to thank you me. so much. Thank you so much for organizing this. Um, I also had a lot of fun. And if anyone from Exeter, doesn't even have to be from our class, wants to talk about anything that I said in this conversation, they should reach out. <laughs> um, yeah, where can they find you? Um, just, that's a good question. <laughs> You'll find a way, guys. You'll find a way. <laughs> You'll find them. All right, awesome. Thanks, Brian, yeah. so much. Yeah, but thank you so much. Um, stay healthy. You as well. Thanks, Brian.